get you in the right direction. Um, and number two, we want to pray for our student camp this week. These guys are leaving tomorrow. They'll be gone all week. Uh, we got Ascend and Grapple and Ascend and an Apex are all going together. Uh, so we want to pray for them, pray for our students, pray for the leaders that are going. These leaders are sacrificing a whole week. Like many of them are taking off of work to go. And so this is, this is a big deal that we're very thankful for. We pray for their safety, their time together. This is the shirt. I get to wear a T-shirt today. It's called Awake. Somebody said it, thought it said Awana. Somebody else thought it said Nirvana. I, I just need to stand straighter, I guess. I don't, I don't know, but there, it says Awake. It's from Ephesians. They're going to be going through the book of Ephesians uh, to learn what it means to wake up, who you are, and therefore when you learn who you are, this is how we are to behave in this world. Like we just read from a twisted and, and uh, crooked generation. That's kind of where we, we find ourselves now today. So let's, uh, let's pray uh, for camp and just for our time together. Lord Jesus, uh, we are before you today as we go through the book of Philippians. Father, right now we just pray specifically for our students, uh, for the leaders, the volunteers that are going to be there. We pray uh, for logistics. We pray for safety and traveling there and getting back, for them to be able to have rides to get there. We pray for fertile hearts. Uh, that will hear your word when it is preached in Ephesians and that they would truly come to life so that the gospel would be advanced, so that healing would take place, so that your name would be lifted above all names. We know that that's where it is, but may it be recognized by those students there that they would fully come alive and therefore give glory to you, Father. We thank you for those that, that do volunteer. We thank you for just the opportunity to do that. I, in, a, in a week, that is a concentrated time where friendships are, are made, where, where, where bonds are solidified. And so I pray that that would happen for your glory um, and your great name. And Father, we pray right now that you would open our hearts, that we would hear your word, that it would change us by your Holy Spirit, that we might worship you, not just with our lips, but with our hearts and sing just at the top of our lungs because you are worthy as we enter in to worship through your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, I like Philippians. It's a good book, right? Uh, it, it is fun. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was While he was in prison, we think in Rome, and he planted the church in Philippi uh, a while back, about 10 years or so. And, and Philippi was a strong Roman colony, and there, there are three, two or three main reasons that he wrote it that, that scholars say. Now, number one is kind of a, a thank you letter uh, for their support. Epaphroditus is bringing support to Paul and, and expressing friendship. Uh, another one is that they were experiencing some opposition with a level of suffering uh, that, that he believes is not very different from what he is experiencing here in, in prison, right? And then finally, the, there is some internal unrest, uh, there's disunity between some of the, in the church that needs addressing among the members there. And so that's kind of the, 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 the press or, or the, the direction that, that we see today in chapter two. Now, although suffering is a theme, joy is, is prevalent. It's mentioned 16 times in the book alone. It shows up in every chapter more than one time. And, and we learn, uh, kind of our first week that joy is possible in spite of your circumstances. Your circumstances don't necessarily dictate your joy. Last week, Joey led us and showed us because the gospel was going forward, because Paul, his sole purpose is Jesus and the love of Christ and the gospel to go forward, because he was in prison, the gospel is still going forward, and therefore he got joy because of his circumstances. And so we were like, 
You can't keep joy down no matter where you are. It's in spite of your circumstances or because of your circumstances that joy can erupt. It's not something that, oh, I've got to have joy. The Bible says I've got to have joy, so I better go work it up. That, that's, that's not what the Bible is teaching us. Joy is, is, is a response to seeing Jesus. It's to knowing who Christ is. It's to reading the, uh, verses like 9 through 11 to see the exaltation of Jesus. It's not something you work up in yourself. And so Paul is seeing the gospel go forward even though he's in chains and it flips his perspective, like Joey said last week. I love it. It's not that he was chained to a Roman guard. And so it's not that Paul was chained to a guard. Paul saw it as the guard was chained to him, and he couldn't get away, right? And so he's the chance to share the gospel. All right, so this week Paul is focusing in on unity, which is a major theme of this, this letter. And so I wanted to try something new in how I did points. They, they are not alliterative. They are actually a sentence, This week. So I thought I'd try something new. So number one, um, our first point is a call to unity. Number two is through love and humility like Jesus. And our third point is to be lights for the gospel. So number one is a call to unity. Number two is through love and humility like Jesus. And number three is to be lights for the gospel. I think the the chapter is set up and it's very simple like that. Um, Just to kind of start off, I... If you ever want to have a little misery and you're feeling a little too happy, you just have to, you know, look at Facebook, and that, that'll take care of that. And so I accidentally did this last Saturday, and I was reading uh, just a, I guess it was off Twitter, but I got onto Facebook, and I was reading. I have some friends that are atheists, and so I was just kind of reading some things where they're, you know, just being proud of what they believe and their worldview, and I was just kind of disheartened because I always am when I when I read this because these are friends of mine. And then I read, uh, uh, I have some Christian friends that, that tweet, and there's a blog there, and, and they were commenting on a, an article from, from Desiring God, and I was just as disheartened by reading the comments that Christians had for one another as I was about my atheist friends. Because whenever somebody has an opinion or there's this personal preference and Christian A gives his two cents and Christian B gives his or her two cents and then they're, they're kind of saying, well, this is right and that's right. And it's just in front of the whole world. It seems it just, ah, I'm like, what? It shouldn't be the same. It, sh- it should be different than how I feel when I, when I read these. And so there's this major disunity that's on display and it's full of what the Bible calls selfish ambition and the conceit, and sometimes it's hidden under the pretense of, I'm just trying to fix you. I'm trying to correct your thinking. I'm trying to show you my way. It's not always like that. But that's the way it came across to me this week. And so as I was reading this, it really made me think about this call or command to unity that Paul gives us here in, in chapter 2. And so verses 1 through 4, and actually even the end of chapter one in verse 27 where it says standing firm in one spirit with one mind standing side by side and paul goes in chapter two and he starts off and he pushes us to unity and it's not an option among many for the church it's not like there's unity and then there's some other things you could do instead it's you're you're pressed to unity for a reason it's not it doesn't terminate on itself but we're to bear the likeness of jesus to the world not only individually, but as a family, but as a church. And it's tied to joy. So why would he need to write about unity? Why would there be, a ne- be necessary for a command? Does unity happen naturally? You no, know, chaos is normal. 
right? Chaos is pretty normal. I don't, I don't come home and, and my wife come and, and say, hey, Jamie, I don't know how to explain it, but the children, they, they spontaneously cleaned their rooms and they were playing board games together this afternoon and, the, and then they worked together to, to put away the groceries while singing, holy, holy, holy. They did that, and they're in their rooms right now working on memorizing Philippians chapter 2 so that they can recite it at dinner tonight. That, that does, that's not natural. That doesn't just happen. If unity were easy, everybody would do it, right? Think of all the things that create tension for people that may not have a ton in common other than Jesus. If you remember the Philippian church, when, when Paul was planting that, there was a slave class there was a working class. There was an upper class all brought together and all their families and their households. They had different education levels. They had different economic or financial levels. They had different worldviews. There was lots of room for jealousy, for pity, for posturing, for proving oneself. Not much different than our modern churches, although we're more refined. We know how to Hide it better. There's a lot that can divide us today. Age, gender, race, politics. Just talk about the climate change. Boom! I don't care if you're Christian or not. Something's going to happen. How our kids are educated, parenting styles, financial status, anything that's different can be used as a measurement against one another. When we start to think in terms of us and them, and we justify our thinking that our personal preferences are okay, and we use that instead of the Word of God. The next thing we know, we're going to be the church at Corinth with factions and divisions and showing the world that we're no different than they are. And Philippi is not there yet. They're not where the Corinthians are yet, which is why Paul is writing this letter. What causes this? Why is it like that? Let me remind you, sin wrecked everything. Since the fruit was eaten in the garden, sin brought in death and disease, brokenness in families and relationships. It's the genesis of war. It's the beginning of why London terror attacks happen. Right? It's racism and ageism and sexism. It not only affects our behavior, but our dreams and our desires are influenced, our motivations. We naturally want to be the center of everything. It's why there are poor work ethics in the job market and people do as little as they can to get by. It's why there are mean husbands. It's why there are controlling wives. Everything has been affected. Everything. My kids are starting to understand this. In fact, my nine-year-old was drinking a Dr. Pepper last week, and he said, Dad, is sin the reason it burns when I burp? I said, sure. Why not? It's all connected. And you have to remember, the enemy is not the person that's different from you. We, we, we tend to think that. That's my enemy. They're different. They want what they want, and I want what I want, so I have to protect but we need to remember who the real enemy is. And it's bigger than that. The gospel is going forward, right? And, and it's at stake, Paul says. So he makes this appeal to the church. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in spirit, any affection, any sympathy, and he says that in a way to assume that there is. You could say, since there's encouragement. 
Or you could say, if you care at all, if there's anything good that comes out of being in Christ, if you have a heart, then that kind of has the feel for what he's going for. It's an appeal for people who supposedly have the Holy Spirit in them. Right? So these benefits of the gospel, this encouragement, this comfort from love, this participation in the community of, of the Holy Spirit is listed here. He says, complete my joy. That's an interesting way. He doesn't just say, hey, do this. He's like, complete my joy. Joy is more full when it's shared, right? The unity in Jesus will produce joy. It results in joy. Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant is it when brothers and sisters swell, uh, uh, dwell in unity? My mom has this embroidered scripture that sat on the toilet my entire life. It's, it's three, third John 4. It says, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It's, just, it's been there my whole life. I can't not see it, right? Christians are called to unity, which is tied to joy. We don't just burn bridges and move on when it doesn't work out. That's if... I know the Holy Spirit's living in me and the Holy Spirit is living in you, right? And we are imaging God to the world together. God who exists in Trinity, who exists in community, which is why we are to exist in community, reflect that. If I know the Holy Spirit's in you and in me, then we know that he is able to produce unity if we submit to him, if we come to him together, if it's about him and not about us and our personal preferences. In John 17 Verse 23, Jesus says in his prayer, the high priestly prayer, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. So it's God's will, right? They may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This this is something we must work toward. Verse 2, being of the same mind, of the same love, being of full accord and one mind, uh, one attitude doing nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry, right? That's posturing yourself or to push your way to the front to make sure that you're seen uh, or conceit, which means empty glory. You're making it about you or, or making it about me. But in humility, we're to count others more significant than ourselves. That reads easy. <laughs> I don't want to do that one, though. I don't like that one. I don't choose that one. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. All right, so compare yourself to that. How are you doing? A lot of times we get our feelings hurt or even mad because people don't esteem us like we think they should. I know I deal with that. I don't let it out because I know it's not socially acceptable. I pull it in and I go, you don't realize the diamond in the rough you're missing. Right, And I just kind of hold on to that and I get a little bitter, maybe a little angry. And what Paul is saying is that you must take unity more seriously than your self-importance. That's why we're so easily offended. That's why this is is a generation of being easily offended. I can't believe you'd say that. I can't believe you'd think that. Maybe I'm just talking to myself. That's why I get offended easily. Because of my self-importance. Somebody stepped on my glory. Or they didn't recognize what I thought they should have. It's because we don't love Jesus enough. That's the simple, <laughs> simple reason. Now that stings a little bit. How would you like me one-on-one instead of Paul reading in a letter? See, we get the, the advantage of taking this 
eight weeks. And some people are like, that's not near enough. And that's true. They got it in one reading, right? <laughs> we just sat down and read it to you. Here, church, here's Paul's letter. But if, what if I sat down one-on-one and I was like, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any, any participation of the Spirit or affection, if you cared about that, if you have a heart for that, go for unity. It's to assume that that's not happening at all. And so some good questions to ask yourself. Number one, do you think you're superior to others? Of course, once again, we wouldn't say that. But I I got a chance this week uh, uh, just to pick up a lady. I was getting a haircut. And a lady on my way back to my truck said, could you give me a ride? I'm like, sure. You know, and she ended up, she doesn't have a home, you know, this kind of thing. So I just ended up starting a conversation with her. And she I told her I was a, you know, I, I don't say I'm a physical therapist anymore. I say I'm a pastor because I've made that, made that transition. <laughs> this feels weird. But I was talking to her, and, and she said, yeah, I was in a church two weeks ago, and I was trying to get a ride home because her car had blown up, you know, whatever. And uh, she said, yeah, uh, the pastor had asked this person to take me home, and, and I heard her whisper to him, I'm not comfortable with her kind. And, and she just... So we talked about that for a little while, and the pastor was very apologetic and all that. And she goes, I just don't know where I'm accepted. Do we think we're superior? I know we don't, we know we shouldn't, but do we, does that, yes, that comes up in us. Let's call it what it is. What do we do with that? We learn to put it at the cross. What, can you enjoy the success of others? I, when I'm in a, a meeting, it could be a church meeting. When I'm in a meeting and I think of an idea and then somebody else kind of takes it and runs with it and adds to it and then what gets remembered is nothing that I had to do with it but it was this other person's idea, I have to figure out and I have to fight away in my heart. This is I'm just exposing myself, right? I have to fight away in me that wants to bring the conversation back around to remind people that I came up with that idea. I'm like, oh, you know, I'd say something like, well, when I introduced this idea so that it's benign, yet it gets the, the point done so that I'm smart about it, so that I let you discover me rather than force you to see me. You, you see the difference? That's the deceitfulness of sin. It's smart. And I've learned how to work the system to the degree that I bolster my self-importance. We're all good at it. We've just got our different ways, and it comes out different in our different personalities. I want credit. I want to get what I think I've earned to make myself valuable in the eyes of others, to prove that I'm worth something. I want to surprise you, right? Because it feels good. So Paul recognizes that this is the music playing in the background of our lives. This, this is kind of how we operate. And Paul says, don't do that. It's going to lead you to destruction. Right? Don't just look at yourself. That comes naturally. Look to the interests of others. Consider them more important than yourselves. Whoa, hold on. Be other-centered, right? Love them, as, love them as yourself, just what Jesus said. Humility doesn't come naturally. It just doesn't. That's utopian. That's a good moral lesson, Jamie. Let's just all get along. I'll be a good person. Good advice. Nope. This is about the gospel. This is not good advice. It's about the heart change. It's about transformation of our lives and our character. It's for God's glory, and it doesn't terminate just on us. 
See, the, the gospel changes who you are. Religion changes how you act. You see the difference? Anybody can just change how they act. It doesn't change your heart. But if your heart is changed, then how you act changes automatically. It's a result. It's a fruit. And so we have to see the difference in those two. To really desire unity. Not just superficial unity. Not just because we play on the same ball team. But because, man, when difficulty comes, we're going to press together, not apart. When I disagree with you or when I don't like what you did or you're different than me or you make me uncomfortable, we don't just back off. And you need something more than advice for that to be real. You need more than you have. Something bigger than you. And that's where Paul's going. Because there's more at stake than just the ability to get along, to have a smoother life, right? Paul tells us in verse 15 that it impacts the gospel advancement and the kingdom. Number two, so we were a call to unity through love and humility like Jesus. We're given an example. This is how you do that, all right? He's like, this is what you're called to. Here's what you do. And so verse five says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the footnote in the ESV, the, the CSB, the NASB, they say something like, have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus. In other words, look to Jesus, look to his mindset, the mind of Christ too, his attitude that he had, be like Christ. Here's what he did. Unity takes sacrifice. It takes humility. You know the root word, the word humiliation it's humility, you know, it's like, whoa, those feel different. Yeah, we don't like it. And don't get super spiritual on me. You know you should be humble. Paul says it's the antidote to selfish ambition, posturing or glory for ourselves. It's the antidote. And so to show us how, Paul applies the gospel story to the problem of unity in the church. He's about to just tell the God, here's the gospel story. And this, this is, when we say the words gospel fluency, if you're fluent in a language like Spanish, I'm not fluent in Spanish. I'm fluent in English somewhat, right? And so I understand how to apply it to all of my life. If you're fluent in the gospel like Paul is, you understand how to apply the gospel to all of life. And he's going to apply it to unity or the lack of unity here. And learning to articulate it like this comes with practice and with maturity. It's not just something automatic you get the day you're saved. But he says in this Christ hymn that, that starts in, in verse 6, he's, who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or, uh, the CSB says, exploited. Right? And so we get this picture of, of Jesus and his divinity mentioned twice right here. In the form of God. He didn't account equality with God, the essence of, of God, his Godness. But verse 7 says he emptied himself. He poured himself out. Um, one, and it's not less God, it's not what he's saying. He is pouring himself out. He's laying aside his status and the, his privileges, his rights, things we would not do. But those are my rights. We have a bill of rights. I have a right to. Jesus says, I'm putting that to the side. I have a right to everything because I created it. I'm the king of the universe. Yet I'm going to take my rights and my status and my privileges and I'm going to put them over here. Because he could have claimed his rightful throne as a king through power and force or terror and beauty. 
He could have come and just made an announcement. Here I am. Look at me and wonder. But he chose humility. That's what Paul is telling us. To serve those who did not deserve it. You see how he's kind of taken the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and he's going to relate it to how we're supposed to be in unity. That's amazing to me. He does it again in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, where he's talking about we need to be a generous people. He's actually talking about the church here in Philippi when he's uh, talking to the Corinthians. And he says, you know, who Christ who was rich but made himself poor so that you, by his poverty, would become rich. It's the gospel story. He had the palace, he had the kingdom of heaven, and he laid it aside and became poor. He gave up all his riches to become poor so that we could become poor through his poverty. That's the gospel story. And this gospel, he's talking about that. And so we've got, he's taken the form of a servant and he's found, as the ESV says, or, um, or ESV says, born in the likeness of men. So the form of a servant, the likeness of men. So we've got divinity mentioned twice. We've got his humanity mentioned twice. And there's this V pattern of going down into the death and then exaltation back out. You'll see how Paul kind of does that in this poetry form. And he's not writing this for this great theology, although we get great theology out of it. We see that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And his love, Jesus' love and his obedience for his father, his love for us, led him to his, his death. And it was the death of shame. This is a Roman colony. They know exactly what crucifixion is about. And Paul just jumps right into it. And and if you remember from Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. Because the cross to one who lives in Philippi meant shame. Criminal unworthy of life, on public display. They, they took all his clothes and he was naked on a cross as they gambled for them so everybody could walk by and see the shame. And it says Jesus despised the shame. Jesus, by his choice, went from being king of the universe with all the right statuses, privileges, authority, and power with that, laid it to the side and went down to shameful death as a criminal. That's the biggest change he could have. That's what it means to lay aside, to empty himself. And this is our example <laughs> Paul gives us. We love rags to riches stories. This is the opposite of that. And it's held up as our example. Paul is saying, live like Jesus did when he went to the cross. And being in Philippi, because it's a Roman colony, That's controversial. You're telling me I need to live like a shamed criminal? What? That's the example? And then we have this look at the exaltation of Jesus. Because he doesn't stay dead. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. This is from Isaiah, right? And and, and it's attributed to Yahweh at the time. And and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so now Jesus is Lord of salvation. He has accomplished that. And he's given the name equal to Yahweh in in the Old Testament. And he's called Lord. 
And it's not, he's not writing theology for the sake of theology. It's not about the humanity and the divinity. Although from that, then we get good training. He's writing this for adoration and emulation. He's writing that for worship and to be like him. For example, we are to love Christ for who he is, for what he does. And also we are to walk in his ways. That's as simple as we can put it. We're to live as he did. And he exemplified best how to live and how he died. I have to repeat that because that doesn't sound that doesn't sound right, does it? Jesus showed us how to live most compactly in how he died. That's what Paul is saying. Let me borrow from a few scholars to lend credibility because I'm just a guy that preaches on Sunday morning and, and you may not believe me. Gordon Fee says we are to live cruciform. And what that means is we are to live in the pattern of the cross. D.A. Carson says the cross is the supreme standard of behavior. Francis Chan says Paul wants the church to adopt the death of Jesus as their central mindset and attitude for life. Instead of living to get, we imitate Jesus who came to give. He's our supreme example. Beholding him, adoring him, and imitating him leads to Christian unity. Now, that may create a big problem for you if Jesus is just your example. Because if he's just your example, you have no hope. You can't be like Jesus. You can try. That's what religion is. And if that's true, then the gospel is is no more than good advice. It's It's no more than a morality lesson or a suggestion on how to improve your character to go read a book. But it's not because Jesus' resurrection is what changes everything. It's what's different than every other religion. Jesus came back from the dead and promises through his spirit to empower us to follow his commands. And that's why we get the last part of this. So we're called to unity and in love and humility follow Jesus' example to be lights in the world, point three. So when we understand verses 1 through 11, Paul says, basically, with all that said, that's what the therefore is, right, in in verse 12. We get, therefore, my beloved, therefore, as, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is not works-based salvation. Work out your salvation. That's, that's not what, what he's saying at all. You're not earning anything here. We're called by Paul, knowing that Jesus has done the heavy lifting, that he has done the work of bringing us back, reconciling us back to the Father. Because of that, we need to work out, to put energy into a life of salvation. Right? We put energy into it, reading our Bible, praying, working on unity, being in fellowship with one another, repenting of things that aren't God-glorifying. Right? It makes, because of what Christ did, it makes our work possible. It makes it effective. I'm going to explain that in a minute. I mean, you can't change your heart. You can try. I want to feel differently about this. And just, right? I want to... I want to hate sin more. And you, you, you can't affect your heart. You can't make yourself love God or others. 
In fact, you do well to start off with admitting that you hate. That comes freely. God can change that. Admit where you are. That's our part. That's how we get in on the the work. We admit where we are. You now, because of the work of Christ, can actually see God and know him. You don't have to act like a Christian anymore. You can be one. See, the difference acting like a Christian is just taking on what society says a Christian should be or what your morality says it should be. And so you try to make your behavior conform to that image. It's all outside. And it wears you out. Because that's not what Christianity is. Learning to imitate Jesus by abiding and walking in dependence on the Holy Spirit like he did is what leads to unity. First Peter 4.11 says, hey, when you're going to serve, serve in the strength that God supplies, not that you supply. Learning how to do this is learning how to become a Christian. Quick illustration. When my son Joshua was about five, he wanted to cut the yard. Well, lawnmowers and five-year-olds do not go along together, right? And, and so what I did was I, I, I cranked it up, and he was so, he was small. We're small people. So he was small, and so there's the handle here. And then there's this other handle down here, and it was just perfect for him. And so we would both kind of push the lawnmower together. He had his little hat rim on and sunglasses and all that. And, and I let him hold the handle of the lawnmower. And so as we push the lawnmower, I'm working and he's working. We're, we're both working, right, because we've got to cut the yard, right? And I, I'm going to cut the yard anyway. Why don't you come along? I'm going to let you in with Daddy, and we're going to cut the yard. Okay. Well, that's great. Now, it's not a self-propelled lawnmower. Right? It's just a regular old push lawnmower. So he can't push it at all unless I'm pushing it. He's five. He doesn't have enough strength. But when I'm pushing it and he pushes it, it goes. Or I could just push it and it would go. It goes either way because... I'm the one that can actually move the lawnmower, if that, if that makes sense. So he's working and, and, and I'm working. I don't need him. But that doesn't make his work unnecessary. I hope you see where this is going. His work matters. This is how he gets in on it. If he chooses not to work, he sits and watches the yard get cut and is not a part of it. He misses out on the joy because there's some joy in cutting a yard. But because I'm pushing it, his work becomes possible. It is now productive. He is adding his work. But it's like pouring a cup of water in a river to make the river go. And if I'm not working, he's just pushing against an object that's not going to go anywhere and he's wearing himself out. And his burden is too much. It's not Jesus' yoke. I can do it without him, but he can't do it without me. And I'm his dad, though. And because I'm a good father, I want him to be a part of the process. And I love working with him. I love seeing his joy when he's holding on to the mower while we mow together. Because he thought we were really doing something. Look at this, Dad. We're cutting the yard. I'm getting to be a big boy. I'm getting to mow with Daddy. We're doing some real work here. We sure are. 
This yard is different now than it was before. And we're restoring it to the way it should be. We're taking all the weeds out. We're getting the junk out of here. And we're cleaning it up the way I wanted it to be in the beginning. This is my father's world. And so I think this is my father's yard. See, works-based salvation, religion says, I can mow the yard. Just tell me what to do. And the gospel and grace says, I must have God working for my work to matter. But when I do, it does. And it glorifies God. And because he gets joy from my joy, he's glorified. It means that I trust him. Because I'm saying, I can't do this without you. And like Jesus, we're living life fully dependent on the Father. So not only, here's the beauty of this verse though. I I just love Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Not only does God work in us, but he can change our desires, our will. He actually affects our heart. He actually empowers our actions for his good pleasure. That's what the verse says. I can't do that for Joshua. God can. And he can do it for us. And so when we, when we think on Jesus, we're trusting him to change us. And then, then is when humility actually becomes possible, Christian humility. Not faking it, not superficial, not good old boy, all shucks. It's real. Putting others first becomes possible now. Thinking of yourself less becomes possible. Getting joy out of unity because Christ is, is your focus becomes not an exception to the rule, but normal. Joy comes from knowing your Father is working and then you are working and it leads us to verses 14 through 18, which is the purpose of unity. It doesn't terminate on itself. We're not called to unity so that we can just be unified. That's part of it. It is to the end of verse 15, so that we will be children of God, so that we are blameless and innocent. In the, mind, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. The word of life is how we know to stay in the parameters. This is how we run our lives. We've got to hold fast to the word of God. And this is a broken world that we live in. Just look at the news. Pick one. Just yesterday. The brokenness of the world is starting to let us know especially in the South, Christian morality is not the norm anymore. We can't hide in our behaviors anymore. We don't mean to. It's just what's happened. That culture is fading and being replaced by secularism. And the light will shine brighter if it's a true light because the darkness will be differentiable. We'll be able to see the difference. This is why you're a light. Now, you are a light, and this is how you are a light, right? By, by unity, by humility, but not just by your morality and by living differently are you going to be a light. That's part of it. Here's what's important. Here's what Paul is getting at. What's most important is not just your morality and your living differently, but how you do it. The attitude in which you display while you're living displays and is a witness for the goodness of Jesus. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's not just for parents to tell children. Oh, the Bible says you shouldn't complain or argue. You shouldn't just complain and mumble. That's what the children of Israel did, and you see what happened with them. That's not what that's for. It's a good application. It's just not the only thing. It's not full enough. That's to the church. 
when we complain, when we grumble, we belittle Jesus. It causes our light to dim for the world to see. Because we'll do what we're supposed to do because that's what Christians do, but we're not going to enjoy it. And so when we learn in unity and we follow the example of Jesus and we're fully dependent on the Holy Spirit, when we have joy, we don't grumble and complain and, and pass the buck or the excuse or expect our world to crash all the time and we shine a bright light. Why, why is that noticeable? Because that ain't normal. And you need power for that to be a reality in your life. You must trust Christ for that. Unity doesn't come from preaching on it. Well, you preached on unity. Well, we'll just do that. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You can't just do a Bible study on unity and then it just work. Those are great starts. Unity comes from living in it, right? Recovering from mess-ups. Repenting when you recognize sin. From, from walking alongside by side one another and loving Jesus and learning to love each other and people that are different than us. The point of unity and why Paul commands it is so that we're a light for the gospel in a dark world. You do this by trusting perfectly the one who laid down his life. You trust that he's working in you and he'll provide you with power to love those who are different, who you think don't deserve it, for those who you think are judging you. So that you're so taken with who Christ is, that sloughs off. And you can love toward folks that don't deserve it. Just like Jesus did. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. We lavish love and unity on people who don't deserve it. And if everybody did that, So I'll finish with this. This is my father's world. Let's learn to push the mower and cut the yard together with our father so that unity will press the gospel into Athens and Limestone County for his glory. We have two, uh, two prayer requests or prayer directives we're going to put on the, on the screen up here. Worship team can go on and come up here. Just have two things, very simple. If this is your first time here, we're just going to spend a couple minutes praying. Just stay where you are. You're good. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper. There are two tables. Well, yep, two in the front and three in the back. If you're a Christian, you're invited to partake of that, whether you're a member here or not. If you're not, just cool. Hang out where you are and watch. If you want to ask somebody to pray, we'll have some folks in the back. We'd love to pray with you to know Jesus. And so we're going to pray first that we would love Jesus more and that would be evidenced by putting away our self-importance and cultivating an earnest desire for unity in the church. Just trying to put some words to what we're just talking about. And then we'll pray that we will be lights in our world, not marked by grumbling or disputing, but joy as God works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. When you finish praying that, you can just move to the tables and we just congregate. Come by yourself. Come with a spouse or, or your family or your missional community. And we just gather around. Band will be playing. Take your time. Maybe you just need to repent your heart and, and say, Lord, I confess. I, I'm numb. I haven't sought you in a long time or I want to or I, I can't control my heart. Just throw it out there. 
and be honest about it. Find somebody to pray with you. Go seek out somebody if you think they need to be prayed. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the word during this time. Don't wait. And we take a few minutes and we'll sing and we'll praise the Lord through song. So let's do that together as family.